This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. no opening sponsor for this episode of In the Arena. Instead, I want to send you to one of my sites to give you a free resource. The Model Sales Week is a nine-part video series that you can get for free by going to themodelsalesweek.com. And there you're going to find a link. You can give us your email address and your first name, and we will send you immediately to those nine videos where you can watch some of my best ideas about how to be truly productive as a salesperson. So go to themodelsalesweek.com and sign up and get the nine-part video series immediately. There's no uh, drip. It's not going to come email after email. You go immediately. You get all the content. I hope you enjoy it. Send me a note. Go to thesalesblog.com. Go to the contact page. Send me a note. Let me know how you're doing with that content, and I hope you enjoy it. It is difficult to be productive today when we have so many things being thrown at us. We have more email than we can possibly respond to. We have more people making requests of us, even though we've not given them permission to do that, using email, using text message, using Twitter direct messages, using an inbox on LinkedIn that's not connected to our real inbox, leaving us messages on Facebook. It's a lot to keep up with. There's so much going on. Most of our lives are more complicated than anything that our parents or our parents' parents could have imagined. And that creates a tremendous amount of stress. One way to eliminate some of that stress or at least get control of it is with a methodology called GTD, which stands for getting things done. And David Allen invented GTD and he wrote a book called Getting Things Done. And I think I tell the story on this podcast. I read the book once and it made no sense to me. A couple years later, as I was trying to gain control and perspective on my life, I picked the book up again and I gave it another try, this time looking at it as a roadmap for how to gain control of all the things that I had to do. And so I've been an advocate and a proponent and a practitioner of GTD for some time using tools like OmniFocus or Todoist to manage all of the priorities and all of the things that I have to do in my entire life. I had a chance to meet David in Amsterdam last year and spent an hour, an hour and a half with him in a coffee shop. And he was nice enough to walk me back far enough through Amsterdam that I could find my hotel. And at that time, I tried to schedule him for a podcast, but he was traveling around the world franchising the GTD methodology. So it's now global and worldwide. But we caught up again and I invited him to join us here. So if you don't know David, you're going to love this interview. And if you're not familiar with GTD, we're going to give you some ways to think about productivity. You can go out and buy that book, understand the methodology and get a kickstart right here with David Allen in the arena. Good morning, David. Good to see you again. Anthony, lovely to be with you. Thanks for asking me. Thank you for uh, walking me most of the way back to my hotel when I was in Amsterdam. And we'll <laughs> we'll talk about the reliance on technology and whether that's making us dumber or not, because we can't find our way anywhere without an iPhone. But we, we can get into that. I wanted to start by talking about GTD in a general way. So 
I've told you this story before, but I'll share it here again because you and I haven't seen each other for a long time. But I read your book when it first came out, and I, I really didn't understand the book. Not that it's a hard book to understand. I didn't understand how to apply it. And so I didn't really read it as a, a recipe book at that time. And I put it down, and a year or two later, I was actually processing things that were in my office. And I came across the book again, and I picked it up. And I think that that old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Right. And so I'm like, you know what? I really need to look at this. And then the second time I started practicing, and it's interesting that we use the word practicing around GTD because it's that's what you would talk about a martial art. You practice a martial art, not that you ever finish that development. But it was fits and starts with me. So one, I wonder if you could just talk about GTD generally and how it became your life's work. And then I'd love to hear your view on why, why does it take you a little while to figure out how to do GTD, even though the recipe is pretty straightforward? Boy, that's a triumvirate question, yes. uh, at least. <laughs> and more. Yeah, yeah, at least. Uh, well, let me start with how I came up with it. Basically, my love of clarity and peace of mind. I hate stress and I hate distraction. And I love the sort of the, the peacefulness of, of having nothing on your mind other than whatever it is you want to have on your mind. And not being distracted and you know worry is a bitch so you know i didn't like any of that stuff through my martial arts training spiritual practices and so forth i got sort of you know seduced into how cool empty space was and what a nice place to operate from and the martial arts very practical for people jumping on a dark alley you don't want two thousand unprocessed emails sort of somewhere hanging around your psyche so that the clarity piece was something i was i loved and then as i got I started my own consulting practice and got more professional, you know, complexity and maturity in my life. I saw how that screwed up clear space pretty easily. So I got hungry for what are the techniques that we could use to keep clear space. And also, I was very interested in, in good models that could work with all the clients that I was working with. So if it wasn't obvious how to improve their condition, how I could support them, it would really be nice to find a methodology or some a model or a process that I could apply that would be universally useful and would apply to everybody. So those two things, very, very long story made very short, but those two things kind of came together as I began to piece together the various components of what then became the Getting Things Done methodology or GTD now as it's known sort of around the world. But that was a long, long, long process, really. There was no big epiphany. There was just a lot of little epiphanets. And first of all, for me using them, and, you know, I learned a technique or two or three or four that would that made a huge difference in terms of my control and my focus. And then I turned around and used those techniques with the people I was working with. And invariably, they produced the same result, you know, improved their condition, gave them more clarity, more of a sense of having things under control, greater sense of personal freedom and, and reducing their stress. I call, hey, well, that's cool. So then I began to put all that together. Then I had a big corporation, a guy, you know, head of HR from the big corporation show up and discover what I was doing. He said, David, that, you know, our whole culture sort of needs that result. And can you somehow frame what you're doing into some sort of educational model as opposed to just one-on-one -on -one consulting, which is what I was doing before. So I said, well, I'll try. So I worked with his organization development team for two or three months, and we designed a two-and-a-half-day personal productivity training around the methodology that I had uncovered and cobbled together, essentially. And that hit a nerve, and so that started essentially a kind of boutique consulting and training business you know, that I ran for 20, 25 years. You know, that was Lockheed, 1983, 84. So that hit a nerve, but I didn't really know what I 
figured out. I've never had a, a traditional psychology or business course in my life. You know, I just learned all this stuff on the street and all these people that were in the big corporate world making more money in a year than I'd see in my life. I figured they already figured this out stuff out. And the bizarre thing about it is that the more sophisticated people were, the more they were hungry for what I had found out. It was, it's almost like the most highly productive people and the most aspirational and, and positively focused people were the ones most out of control that, that could most utilize what I was uncovering. So long story short, you know, it took me 25 years to figure out what I'd figured out. And then at some point I said, okay, it is unique. Nobody else has, has come up with what I've come up with and it's bulletproof. You can't punch a hole in it. And, and so I wrote the book in 2001. It's, it's funny how that happens because you think that this is all by design, but you sort of stumble into problems and then you stumble into solutions and your, your brain goes to work on it. It wasn't this grand design of, hey, I, I think I'm going to go this direction. It sort of, it happens. We love the stories when there's this epiphany and you have the one great idea, but it doesn't normally just happen that way. You, you have to stumble into things as you, as you figure things out. Well, I love it that people, I'm going to be innovative. All oh, right, go be innovative. <laughs> Innovation was never created by somebody who went out to be innovative. Innovation is what you call something that somebody did because they stumbled and fumbled and tried to solve something in a way that hadn't been solved before. <laughs> and then you call that innovative. So I guess, I guess it somewhat is in the same vein. When did you figure out that this was big enough to be your life's work? Was it when the book was published and people started to catch on to, hey, wait a second, this is a much more useful process for us to follow or a methodology than other things that are available? No, Anthony, you know, I actually figured that out, that it was my life's work. I didn't, I wasn't sure how big my life's work was going to be, but, you know, I had so many different careers and jobs. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. I was a good number two guy for a lot of people. That's why if you look in Wikia, they say I had 35 professions by the time I was 35. I mean, those weren't really careers or professions. There's a little bit more one night stands, you know, but the, how many things I'd done for money because I, w I was more interested in the inner world, not the outer world, but they weren't paying people to explore the inner world. So I still had to pay the rent. So I had friends who were starting their own businesses or whatever. So I was a good number two guy. So I came in and helped them do what they were doing, but they were more interested in the content. I was more interested in how they were doing it because I'm just Mr. Lazy. So I look around and say, well, here's an easier way you could do what you're trying to do. And I would, now they call that process improvement. I just said, Hey, you know, let's, let's fix that or let's make that work easier. Cause I don't want to work so hard. And you know, then I discovered they actually pay people to do that and they call them something. So consultant, you know, couldn't spell it. Now I are one. So in 1981, I hung out my shingle. That's why but interestingly, Anthony, as I began to uncover this, you know, there's a, there's a deeper part of all of this that I think is so core to our experience as human beings, because a whole lot of the core of the methodology is being accountable for the things that you have wrapped yourself around and produced and, and attached yourself to. You can call it karma. You can call it incomplete agreements with yourself or whatever. But I knew that was a very powerful thing to be able to teach people about that, because most people were pretty unconscious, first of all, about how many agreements they make with themselves and also the price they pay because of that, if they don't manage that appropriately. So I knew that that was going to be critical information for anybody. So I couldn't stop telling people that. I couldn't stop sharing that with people any, at any time. So it, it, when I came across that, I realized, well, this is really what we're about on the planet. And you can take that at the most mundane or sublime levels that you want uh, in terms of just, okay, being accountable for that and then being accountable for where you attach yourself and where you put your creative energy. So it's really those two things. Hey, what have you created? You're going to eat it unless you get on top of it. And what do you keep creating? And, you know, is that what you ought to be keep creating? So I said, 
ultimately GTD is nothing more than that. But it just turns out that the way I framed it and the way I was able to package this was something that began to tackle the, all of those expressed interest in time management, personal organization, productivity, prioritization, all that stuff that started to become pretty hot stuff, especially back in the 80s, in the 80s, when time management started to become, you know, quite a popular, you know, commodity in terms of training and interest in the, in the corporate world. And the, so the corporate world was, they were the ones particularly in the most pain in terms of the volume of things and overwhelm and, and the things that, that what I was uncovering could actually solve or get on top of. So it just became a good job. So back to your question, as soon as I saw how universal this was, how much without fail it helped anybody and that people were willing to pay me money for it, I mean, I figured that out back in 1983. So, And and now worldwide, we'll get to that in a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about GTD and the process and this thing that you just talked about. I think we make a lot of commitments that we're not really recognizing that we're actually making a commitment when we do things, when we have conversations and when we say, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'd like to talk more. And we're making all these commitments, but until you capture them, you don't really recognize what you've committed to and how much of it, you know, unknowingly you might have agreed to, to having some next action. Correct. I'm really good. I'm probably like a ninth degree black belt in capture. Captures just for me, that's the easiest one for me to to do, and I've got great systems. But I feel like collecting all your open loops gives you a psychological sort of reprieve right out of the gate. You've got it somewhere where you can now let go a little bit. But where where I personally struggle, and I think a lot of people do, is on the clarifying of what needs to be done next. So what causes us such great difficulty in looking at these open loops and deciding what the very next action is? You have to think. <laughs> you I'm sorry. Think. It's hard work. Thinking is hard work. Don't kid yourself. That's why, you know, the, all the new stuff about this decision fatigue, there's actually a cognitive muscle almost quite literally that you use when you have to think. So when your mom's birthday is coming up and you're going, oh, shit, what am I going to do about mom's birthday to actually think and make a decision about what are you going to do about it? And if you decide to give her a birthday party or celebrate the birthday, what's the very next action step you need to take? And that's actually using a cognitive muscle that does not happen automatically. It does not happen by itself and you're not born doing it. It's actually a technique that you have to learn and that you actually have to develop that muscle (laughs) to do it. So the clarifying is really, you know, the the time that you have to think it through to make that decision. Yeah. I think I found one way that helps me with that. But I, I, I want to riff on this a little bit more because your model has what used to be called horizontal and, and vertical, but now is control and perspective. And the control is sort of the action steps and perspective is sort of what, what are you looking at this from? Are you looking at it from the runway or are you looking at it from your role or are you looking at it from the meaning of your life? Yeah, I, I feel like it's easy to ignore perspective. It's easy to ignore that when you get wrapped up in the tasks and too much in my practice, I think I spend in the control part. Is it easier for us? Why is it common to spend more time in control? And why is perspective difficult? Is it the same reason that you have to do more thinking? Yeah, I think so. It's also that I think there's a part of us that subliminally knows that new decisions, new directions at the higher horizons of your commitments 
you know, what is the, what is your ideal vision of career and lifestyle? Why are you on the planet really? What really, really matters to you? And what do you need to accomplish between, you know, over the next 12 to 24 months that, that thinking about that and making some decisions about that and clarifying the inventory at those horizons of your commitments <laughs> is going to shake up your world. Tell me yeah. ab about that in the, in the context of the weekly review, because it doesn't, it doesn't fit that for me anyway. What, what do you think about when do you do that work where you really sit down and get into perspective? When you need to. I mean, my, you know, the simple answer to that is I do that when I need to do that to get it off my mind. See, the more you're thinking about your strategic plan, the less it's happening. Because there's an inverse relationship between on your mind and getting done. So essentially, the core element about how do you do anything and how much do you need to do of this GTD process is called what's still on your mind. What do you need to do to get your life purpose off your mind? What do you need to do to get your core values off your mind? They may be off your mind already, in which case, forget it. <laughs> you know, don't, don't go do something. You know, you got enough to do. That's fine. So just start to pay attention to what has your attention. If you have a life partner and they come home tonight and say, gee, dear, well, I've just been given a major career opportunity. We're going to have to move to Afghanistan for a couple of years, though. Believe me, you are going to have a, you're going to have a, 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 a conversation, uh, you know, that's going to take you up to a different horizon in your life and your commitments in terms of lifestyle and where we're going and how much do I care about this person and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's kind of nice if you've done some sort of proactive thinking at these different levels. It's kind of like the martial arts. The, the more you've sort of practiced ahead of time, it's a lot easier to deal with surprise. So when you get surprised with the things that are going to lift you up to higher horizons, like you just found out you have a life-threatening illness, right? That'll take you up to a higher horizon pretty fast. Oh, wait a minute. Why, you know, what if I, yeah. <laughs> what if I check out tomorrow? You know, so all those, all those kinds of things can then lift you into a different level of, of game. You know, we, we, we all love our grooves. We love to be in our grooves. We love to be in our comfort zones. And being out of your comfort zone is tricky and challenging. It's something, there's a part of us that goes, oh my God, you know, I'm feeling enough out of control. I don't need something else that's going to throw me further out of control. So I think that's one of the reasons that people tend to resist those kinds of things. What's fascinating is that once you actually, if you actually sat down and did, as you know, we've defined six horizons of the commitments you, you have with yourself, you'll see that you're probably pretty much in alignment with all of them. You just may not be that aware of it. And so it, it would be maybe a little bit more relaxing to realize, hey, wait a minute, talking to David right now on this podcast is actually very much in alignment with who I'm about, what I'm about, and, and what's really cool. It is. It's my life. I think it's just <laughs> how painful it is to actually become conscious. It is. And some of your answers sound like a Zen master's answer. So, you know, you, well, you just came up with the same, same answers. I mean, I, I didn't, I loved the Zen aesthetic. I, you know, I read a whole bunch of Zen and, you know, that was, I was very attracted to all that, but they just came up with the same conclusions I did. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the conclusion. <laughs> one, one thing that I found, I'd, I want to just get your reaction to this. Almost invariably, I get a lot of things that pour into my inbox where I don't really want to make a decision on it. And I've put it in a list called incubate. And incubate really means stalling decision. I've recognized that. But almost invariably, if I look at it and I say, stop looking at it from runway and go up to a higher level of perspective, the answer becomes very clear for me. This is mm. not aligned with the outcomes that I'm trying to achieve in my life or in my business. I need to say no, or I need to point them at somebody else that can help them, or, or I need to do something different. But do you think that's a methodology that's useful for being productive when you're looking at something and you can't figure out what to do? Move up to, is it aligned with my role? Is it aligned with my goals? Is it, is it aligned with my purpose? Sure. No, no, that's, that's, you're right on. That's why 
in one perspective, I you know expressed it as the control and the perspective dynamics. And they're they're very closely related. If you're out of control, it's it's hard to focus on the, the, the bigger games. And if you don't focus on the right bigger game, it's very easy to lose control. But you need to marry those together. One without the other. Control without focus is micromanagement. And you know, and focus without control is crazy making. You know, so you you need to have that sort of that that I guess a Zen sort of little balance in between all that. I need just enough control to give me the freedom to be able to think of things from a larger perspective and maintain that in a sustainable way. So that's probably the application to a weekly review, which we'll talk about is to start thinking if you're struggling with something, clarifying it, move up, see, see if that helps you get greater clarity on, on what the answer would be. I'm going to get general and ask some questions because you are the GTD guy and there's an enormous trend right now towards being productive and hacking. Everybody wants to hack everything. What does it even mean to be productive? What does that mean when people say that? And and what is productivity? Because it, it seems to me that right now the trend is towards checking things off a box. Well, in a big way, yeah, that's what it is. It's, it's you know, when you say, what do people mean by that? I don't know. I and mean, I'll tell you what I mean by it is simply achieving desired experiences or results. If you go to a party to boogie and you don't boogie, that's an unproductive party. Right. The problem is, is productivity has got a bit of a baggage around the word and business and busyness as opposed to just achieving. Look, hey, I need to go relax. And if you don't go relax, you have an unproductive afternoon. So it's really all about what are you trying to do? So, yes, that is a box to check off. I would like to relax today. Great. You know, what do you need to do to check that box off? So absolutely. So the whole life hacking thing, which I think, you know, I pretty much spurred with the GTD book out there was, hey, how much easier can we make life? You know, because, you know, I write the, one of the first things I write in the book is efficiency has gotten a bad rap. You either like what you're doing, in which case doing it with less effort and creating more results for the energy you put into it would be way cool. Or you don't like what you're doing, but you have to do it anyway. So you want to do it with as little effort as possible and fast as possible so you can get onto the cool stuff. So it's really all efficiency, you know, in a way. And you say, well, no, it's efficiency versus effectiveness. Are you doing the right things as opposed to doing things right? And I understand that dynamic, but quite frankly, it's all about efficiency. Are you, are you being efficient toward fulfilling your life purpose at the largest level of gain? So when you take these horizons into account, then efficiency actually is really the whole thing. With how little effort can you produce the optimal result for yourself? What is the baggage that, uh, is, that comes around that word efficiency when it comes to businesses? Oh, I think because a lot of people are busy out there doing stuff and they're trying to, you know, it's like a lot of software. They design cool software and feature creep it like crazy and they forgot why the hell they, what the purpose of the software was. You know? <laughs> and then they make it so hard to use that you know, so much effort to do it, they forgot what the ultimate purposefulness of this was. So, you know, yeah, so it's very easy to, to get hung up into the efficiency mode, meaning at one level, you're just working on, on doing that. But is that the right thing to do? So I understand those, you know, it's, it, it is, but the right thing to do is efficiency at another level. Is that the right thing to do based upon where you're going, your career, you know, your lifestyle, your core values and so forth. Efficiency at one level, if you just stay at that level, yeah, it can be just a, a waste of time, but a waste of time only relative to what? Relative to how efficiently you're trying to accomplish a result from a higher perspective. Yeah, we're back to higher perspective. That seems to be a big theme for me. And now your organization, you have partners worldwide. Do you feel like generally people are experiencing more stress and a greater sense of overwhelm now than maybe even in 1981 when you started this work? And if you do, 
Do you think technology is playing a role in that? Well, the people, are people experiencing more stress? I think there are more people experiencing this stress. There were certainly people experiencing this stress in 1981, you know, but there just weren't that many as there are now. You know, back then, maybe five to 10% of the professional world was feeling truly overwhelmed and overcreated and, and, and had to deal with change that was moving at them fast and, and into new worlds that they were unfamiliar with and uncomfortable with. So it was just a smaller percentage of the population, I think, that, that were in the pain that a whole lot of people are in now. You know, I, I kind of make it up these numbers, but I would say, you know, maybe five to 10% of the professional population in 1981 was in this state. And now it's 90% of the professional population is in this state. Why do you think that's true? Well, the world's gotten flat. You know, we're, we're 24 seven. There's no distinction between home and work and the digital world has, <laughs> if you know what you're doing and you're really clear, it's a fabulous time to be alive. Given the technology, look, you and I are talking to each other across yeah. the planet, right? Pretty uh, cool. If you, if you don't know what you're doing, you're toast simply because of the stress of opportunity. But there's nothing new. I mean, you, you, you know, you mentioned GPS to begin with. What, you know, oh my God, well, Catherine and I were just talking tonight about, the, remember the Thomas Guide? Yeah. Did you ever have to be? Oh, yeah. I lived in LA. You lived in the Thomas Guide. <laughs> of course. So, that, you know, and, but we just figured that out. I mean, so that was, there's really nothing game changing about that. I mean, even the web as, as game changing as people are, do you remember the yellow pages? <laughs> I mean, it was very easy to waste time flipping through the yellow pages, right? And it was very easy to waste time staring at college bulletin boards or, you know, laundromat bulletin boards. What's the difference between social media and the web other than the old yellow pages and the bulletin boards with all those notes stuck on them? You know, about everything everybody was doing and wanted and, and partner for rent and, you know, yada, yada. you know, come on. So there's really nothing new out there about that other than the ubiquity of it and the speed of it and the volume of it that people have allowed in to their lives given their, you know, the, the digital access they now have. Do you think technology offers answers to this? Do you think that it's worth the investment in the technologies to try to reduce that stress? And I know there's about, I don't know, there's thousands of, I mean, if you go and just search GTD tools, you're going to come up with a million links. But what, what do you yeah. think about technology as a way to help eliminate some of that stress? Well, I think it can a little bit. I think to some degree, there is a function follows form. If you have a really cool app, it can help you do things better sometimes. It gets you to think about things in, in more of an appropriate and productive way. So, you know, that's true. And the fact, but again, if you don't have GTD under your belt, as yeah. a methodology, it all feels overwhelming. And you don't know what to do with all those cool tools. And they become as much of a problem as they are a solution. So, you know, in terms of learning how to do it, once you have this methodology under your belt, you can make any tool work. You just need a list manager, right? Yeah, and you know, the, you know how to do that. So in, in your opinion, I mean, and I'm going to get technical on this one for just a second. I know the technology makes it easier and more efficient to capture and to manage lists, but it doesn't improve your GTD over paper if paper's the right choice for you. Right. So it, it's whatever works for you and the technology isn't really going to give you as great of a return as actually spending time thinking about perspective and clarifying and doing the work that you need to inside the model. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I've, I've made a couple of attempts over the last 20 years really to, to see if we could digitalize something that would facilitate that thought process. And the answer was no. You know, quite frankly, and I just gave a, a keynote on this to, at the next web conference in, in, in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago about, is there anything really that's been game changing in terms of the technology? And my answer was, quite frankly, since the word processor and the spreadsheet, no. 
Yeah, they sped it up, you know, so everything's sped up. But basically, the word processor changed the game because it mapped to more how your brain likes to think. Your brain likes to have an idea and then later on figure out what to do with it, which if you're still using a race tape on a manual typewriter, believe me, you know, you, 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 you do not have the freedom to think. Now you have the freedom to write a shitty first draft very easily in Microsoft Word. But in 1970, you couldn't print a letter on your computer without a programmer. Anyway, so I think those were really game-changing events. And certainly the spreadsheet was hugely, simply so, because of you know, how many people are actually running their businesses just off Excel. The greater benefit would be in um, sort of like the, the benefit of meditation, taking the time, making the space, and doing the work versus trying to say, I can automate this and get a better gain. The, the technology is great, but it isn't going to do that work for you. Yeah. And then again, you know, that said, there's nothing like a cool tool to keep you motivated to do this. You know, I remember when the Palm Pilot came out, I was doing great work simply because the Palm Pilot looked so cool in a dark bar. If you turned it, if you turned it on, you know, and learning the, the little pin coding that you could do with it was really cool. And I actually did a whole lot of productive thinking simply because I love cool little lights on a cool little tool like that. You're, you know, you're, really you're selling that. And there's millennials <laughs> and Generation Z people who are going, what's a Palm Pilot? That sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, really. It, and there no better list manager has ever been built since then, quite frankly. If you, if you didn't have to have Outlook or Lotus Notes or Gmail or, or any of that stuff, just the desktop PC version of the Palm and the Palm Pilot that's synchronized to that, there was nothing slicker, faster, easier if you have the methodology. It was really just text-based, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that was enough. You, yeah. I know you've been uh, reading and studying neuroscience and attention and focus and distraction. What does neuroscience tell us about things like focus and attention and distraction? Well, I'm, I, I can't say that I'm a, a real heavy researcher on that. I'm, I'm more an end user, sort of looking at the summaries of the research, you know, and seeing how that maps to it. And, you know, the new edition of Getting Things Done, you know, that I published last year, there's a whole chapter in there where we've we curated a whole bunch of the cognitive science that's shown up since the first edition showed up that basically validated your head sucks as an office. It just wasn't designed to do that. And a lot of studies have now proven that. And basically, you know, a lot of the cognitive science stuff, I think, is is really just unpacking. Well, as you know, you, you interviewed Frank Sopper and, you know, as Frank said, you know, this is the whole associative versus sequential is that's as old as Plato or whoever, you know, this is yin yang. This is creator destroyer. I mean, this, you know, this, this is sort of universal stuff, but we're getting a lot more specific, I think, about what those dynamics were that in the, you know, older ages, people just sort of caught and just sort of maybe more poetically expressed, you know, or mythologically expressed. But I think we're just understanding how that really works right now. And and how our brain really functions in terms of its cognitive functionality. They say, well, the millennials, they're a whole new generation and they can multitask. Oh, come on, give me a break. You're not going to change in a million years of involvement of your brain in, a, in 20 years. <laughs> right? So the kids are unfortunately you know, de denigrating their performance simply by trying to do all that stuff all at once. So you're not, you don't believe in multitasking? Oh, I believe in that you can, that, well, you're multitasking all the time. You're pumping blood and breathing right now. You know, multitasking is actually what happens when you drive home and you wonder who drove, who got here, you know, because <laughs> my mind was somewhere else. But multitasking happens when you have a lot of stuff on automatic, you know, that, that can happen simultaneously for sure. What you can do is rapidly switch your focus. 
However, the problem is if you don't have the GTD methodology under your belt, then you switch your focus unless you have a placeholder for the last thing you were focusing on. It's now dragged along with you in your head. Now you're trying to focus on the new thing, but some part of you says, yeah, but don't forget what you just talked about. Don't forget what you talked about. Don't forget what you talked about. And so they're actually attempting to multitask simply because they don't have good personal systems to manage all of that. See, if you walked in and interrupted me or just walked out, I didn't expect you. And you said, hey, David, would you handle this? I say, hey, great. I'll, I'll make a note, throw it in my own in-basket. Or I make a note with where, where I was and put it back in my in-basket and then turn around and have a great conversation with you. With My brain can be fully present with you. Like a martial artist who fights four people at once doesn't fight four people at once. It's one at a time. Just real quick switch. And you're not taking one to the next, right? You're going from that, that's done. Now I'm going to this, this is done. Or I have a placeholder for it. Right. So that if you think of in that way, one can rapidly switch. Now, that said, there are some kinds of thinking that you do need some quality time to actually sit down and reflect. And it'd be hard to write the forward. You know, some friend has asked me to write a forward to their book. It'd be hard to do that in five minutes and then go do, try to do something else. I really need to create a context that gives me some uninterrupted time to be able to focus on something like that. But if it's just in the day-to-day business of life, come on, sometimes rapidly switching is what you need to do. And hey, God, my brain is toast right now. Let me go change a light bulb or let me go take a nap or let me go, you know, let me go play with my dog for five minutes or whatever. Well, that's just rapidly switching and sometimes, especially changing the energy field that your, that your mind is working in is sometimes very healthy. Keeps you relaxed. I think of an emergency room. You know, you're, you want people who can rapidly switch. And then there, there are other things where you want somebody like you want a brain surgery. You don't want the brain surgeon with his iPhone up looking at notifications <laughs> coming in while he's operating on you. There's something. Yeah, that's, true. Yeah, that's good, 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 good analogy. Yeah. Do you think there's a price to pay though for, uh, and not only millennials, I see everybody walking around with their phone in front of them responding at all times. What's the price in your opinion that we pay for always allowing ourselves to be in that distracted mode? I don't know. I think it's quite personal. I think people need to be honest with themselves and ask themselves what's the price they think they're paying. First of all, you're likely to walk off a cliff. (laughs) Actually, I I saw the statistic. More people have died taking selfies this year than than have been killed by sharks. (laughs) It's true. So, I mean, so that's probably the most dramatic version thereof. But yeah, it is a little silly when you see parents walking along and not talking to their kids. They're talking to their phone. So I, I think there's a social and interactive price you pay if you're in a context. But then again, you know, hey, let's get together and do cell phones together. Let's get together and do our share social media. I mean, I, in a way, there's no different than, hey, let's go to the library together and, you know, focus on different books. But we're kind of in the library together. So in a way, if everybody's in agreement about that, you know, that, that's cool. Why not? It feels to me like the most effective people in getting things done in the future are going to be people who are able to have the willpower and the self-discipline to sit in a room with their cell phone without having it in their hand for periods of time and actually focus on another individual. Oh, sure. Well, one simple way to describe that, I mean, one of the things I've seen is that most people are living in emergency scan mode because very few people are cleaning up their backlog of unprocessed, uh, potentially meaningful stuff, everybody's worried they're going to miss something. And so the worried I'm going to miss out on something has got everybody glued to all the, well, what's next and what's hot and whatever. I'm not. It's like, hey, if your backlog is zeroed out every 24 to 48 hours, they can reach me if they need me. But 
heck, why be involved in all that? So very easy to unhook and walk around the park without my phone. I'm super critical of people who live in their inbox. And I'll have people who call me to say, did you read my email? And I'll ask, when did you send it? Just now. But no, <laughs> I'm not in my inbox. I'm in my inbox two or three times a day. Yeah. And I process it and anything that needs an immediate response, I try to take care of anything that doesn't is going to sit. Just uh, personally, how much time do you spend in your inbox? How often do you process? We'll get to your email process later, but just generally a couple times a day. Whenever I feel like it. Okay. You know, I do things whenever I feel like it. But again, I will feel like it if it starts to mount up. Like when do I take a shower? When I feel like it. Now it doesn't go too long. Before I take a shower, because I'm really not going to, I'm going to feel a little grody the longer it goes, but I'm not constant. I'm not 24 seven in the shower, yeah. you know, <laughs> so I'm not 24 seven in my email. Same thing. Yeah. So I'm looking at my physical entry right now and, you know, there's about 15 things in it, which I'll get to. If you were late coming online with me, I'd be, I'd be processing a few of them. My email got zeroed out right before we talked simply because, Hey, I feel like doing that. And I want to get those out of the way because my wife and I are going to a large wine event in the big forest in Amsterdam this afternoon, this evening. So sounds great. I didn't want to have any backlog of anything. So I don't have to take anything with me. I try to help people with the email by reminding them of mail mail. Like if the mailbox came every 14 yeah. seconds, would you get up and go out and check to see what was in there knowing it's not anything that's worth your time already? Well, if you're waiting for a million dollar check from a client, I would. Yeah, me too. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> Come on. You know, so it kind of depends. That's why I say if I feel like it, sometimes I'm checking my email many times a day. But again, I, the main thing is not just, yeah, emergency scans sometimes. Look, I'm going into a meeting. Let me see if there's anything, you know, critical that I need to see before I walk in so my brain's free for the, for the next hour or two for this meeting. Sure. But I don't leave it that way. I mean, I barely, seldom have more than a screen full of, of emails. What would you tell people about procrastination? What is that? What's the root cause of that? And what would you tell people to do about taking care of the things that need to be done when they need to be done rather than putting them off? Well, one of the major keys, which you're probably aware of, is, is deciding the very next action on it. Because one of the reasons people, one of the main reasons people procrastinate is they're not sure what to do. And they don't feel, they don't like feeling out of control. I don't want to step into, I think I need to change the, the thing on the porch, but I think there's probably something I need from the hardware store, but I don't know what it is. Oh, damn. So they'll avoid that simply because they don't get up and go, look, excuse me, do I need a screwdriver? Do I need screws? Do I need the right light bulb? What, which one do I have? And they, would, they could do that in two minutes, but because they don't actually nail it down to the real specific action required, it creates this sort of big void in their head called, God, there's a bunch of stuff I just, I don't know what it is and I don't have time to think and decide I quit. And so, so you don't, you don't engage. So one of the biggest barriers to entry to engaging is the, is the lack of deciding the very, very, very next physical action step. And most people want to make things perfect. They don't want to feel out of control. They don't want to engage in something they don't feel they can be successful about. So they want to, and if they don't feel like they know exactly how to do everything perfectly, you know, it's the perfectionism that sits with so many people. That's why they'll avoid getting involved. I think too, when you look at a big project and you have so many tasks, you, know, you do have to go back through the clarifying and deciding what is that next action. Yeah. And even just in, in my experience and my practice, just figuring out that next action and taking that step seems to clear up a lot of things for you. Huge. And most people, <laughs> a lot of things you're actually over plan if you plan past the next step. And many times the next step is I need to take a next step to find out what to do. That's right. 
And that's fine. You know, maybe that next step is call somebody. Maybe the next step is surf the web about something. Maybe the next step is talk to your life partner about something. Hell, the next step might just be pick up the phone, punch seven numbers at random, see who, when somebody answers, say, hi, do you know anything about, you know, and if not, do you know anybody who might, you know, you're only about six people away from the Pope. So there's always something to start doing. Those are actually the, the fun things. You, those are your better days when you actually finish a bunch of those little things that are actually moving the needle on your big stuff. But until you get down to little thing thinking, you'll avoid it like the plague. Yeah. Let me talk about your business now a little bit. So you now have people teaching GTD across the globe. And so your organization has expanded dramatically. And I know that you've been involved in going to different countries and teaching the methodology. My experience in traveling is that I think, well, I'll, I'll say it to you this way. Every country I've ever been to, somebody sits me down and says, listen, Ireland's different than the United States. So we need to explain to you all the ways that Ireland is different. And then if I'm talking about sales, they'll say, well, it's really hard to get people on the phone. Everybody's concerned about price. And they'll give me a list of things that are true in every country I ever go to. And so I'll just nod as they go until finally they, they feel okay that they've told me these great differences. What are the differences in cultures, particularly contrasted with the United States, when it comes to, to the work that you're doing, how people think about productivity? Is this idea about getting things done and capturing and clarifying and processing and, and doing this work, is it true in every country that you've been to? Or are there certain differences that you have to account for when you're, you're looking at people who maybe have a different cultural reference? And I mean, you're in Europe right now, and Europe's a lot older than the United States. And Amsterdam particularly is an interesting place where things are very different. What are your thoughts on that? No difference anywhere. <laughs> really? Zero. <laughs> this is so universal. The difference is why. Why you would do it is different. Much like Frank said about the cognitive preferences, you know, the why question, both the sequential people and the associative people have, they would just have different answers, right? So different answers in Norway, for instance, we have a, a, a great, very active franchisee there and representative of our doing our work there. And Norway is so family oriented and quality of life oriented that that's why they do GTD. You go to Germany where they're highly efficient and very process oriented, they love GTD because it produces that, it does that. But it's the same, you know, the people attracted to this around the world, by the time you get to the point of being attracted to this work, this is not for, it's for anybody, but not for everybody. So the people, the people who are attracted to this, much like the people who would be attracted to sales training or sales, you know, management or whatever, you're going to find it is universal everywhere. As a matter of fact, it's an interesting network of people that sort of have come together around GTD. It's quite a global network. And there's more in common with people in that network with people halfway around the world than with their next door neighbor or their cousin in terms of just both lifestyle values, how they look and deal with the world. So it's, it's quite a universal event. I've gotten a lot of comments on the interview I did with Frank, and uh, I took his test, and we talked about you behind your back, of course. And, <laughs> and uh, if, I was no, I heard it. it was a, it was a great interview. Yeah. Frank sent me a link to it. Yeah, I'm surprised that you're associative because what this work is is so process oriented and sequential, and I, I would have guessed you more that direction. But then you're a mind map guy. Yeah, well, the reason I the reason I like this is it gives my brain to be free to go wherever it wants to go. Again, I've got some of the most creative. Catherine and I are just catching up on Buffy the Vampire Killer, right? I never I never seen all of any of the Buffys, but Joss Whedon, who created all that, is a huge GTDer. So Howard Stern is one of my biggest fans. 
Yeah. So you'll find that some of the most creative people love GTD simply because it creates space. Right. So what you do with space is quite unique to you and your own style and your own personalities and your own configurations or whatever. But GTD is a universal process that universally creates more psychic room. So the interest in it will come from whoever could use and would love more psychic room, room to create better music, room to create better, better paintings, room to spend more time with my kids, room just to be a better surgeon room. I don't know. You know, you tell me, but it, it's, it, it crosses everything. We, I've never seen any one particular profile who takes to this other than somebody who really, really, really could use and wants more room. Everybody wants more room. I mean, that's why I'm thrilled to have you on here is because I have people ask me, how do you get so much done? How do you do all the things that you're doing? And the secret for me, or one of them has been going through the GTD process and making room and also doing the work to clarify and making sure that I'm serving the bigger outcomes in my life and I'm processing that. So my weekly review literally takes me a long time. I was going to ask you about that, but I'm not going to ask you now because I want to ask you different questions. My weekly review takes a long time, but then the rest of my week is free because I did that work. I hope that we can well, give people a flavor of that freedom because Anthony, Anthony, think about this. You know, uh, I don't know what kind of a favorite sports team you have. Anybody listening to this, who's your favorite sports team, whether it's soccer, football, you know, basketball, I don't know. How much of their work week do you think they spend getting ready for that one hour? 95% of their week is spent getting ready to do work. And most people won't even take 10 minutes to get ready to do their day. <laughs> you say you take a long time to do your weekly review. Come on. You take as long as you take so that you're fully focused and you don't have to think anymore. You know, you can now, you now have the freedom to intuit in terms of your decisions. You know, as I say, I think about once a week, that's enough. If you really think and use, use that thinking time to do what you're talking about, to sort of step to the different horizons, catch up all your lists, bring up the rear guard in terms of your commitments and get clarity about all the new stuff that's happened since the last time you did that and get really current, get your external brain in a trusted place, man, you sit back, the rest of your week is going to be, uh, you know, way cool. If you don't do that, you're always thinking you should. It's true. If I, oh, if I miss a week, I'm a mess. I mean, at sometimes I have to stop and say, you know what? I just have to, no matter what else happens, I have to catch up the weekly review. It's so important. And I, I think it's overlooked because oh, cap capture so easy. And your salespeople, if you're in any kind of a sales role, no matter how mundane or how sublime it is, how often do, should you sit back and look at your 80s, 20s, 5s? I mean, who are the 80 people you might want to talk to? Who are the 20 people you got to move to closure on? And who are the five you're, you're not going to stop till you get a real no in terms of that stuff? And how often do you need to look at that? So it's that process. If you're going to be successful in terms of the selling process, you should know you have to constantly keep sitting back and follow up, follow up. Come on, you know, the old the old game there. But that's that's a version of what this is. It's just about doing that about your life, not just about sales. And the freedom of doing that. I, I don't want to walk away from that without just putting an exclamation mark on it. The freedom that you have after you do that work. So I spend a couple hours on Saturday and a couple hours on Sunday. But then the rest of the week, I have this immense freedom to start making choices about what I want to do because I've done the work. And I think because of technology and because the business world has changed so much, we spend most of our time in reactive mode. And if we were a little bit more proactive about taking control of perspective and gaining control of all our commitments, the rest of the freedom that it gives you allows you to just to work. And the, the book is stress-free productivity. And it does, it eliminates a lot of the stress that you feel if you do that work. Yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, I, mean, I live in reactive mode all the time, except I'm the one that's creating what I'm reacting to. 
right? You like to react. Actually, reacting doesn't require a whole lot of thinking. I've already done the thinking. I've already put stuff in motion. Now I just need to go out and kind of do dumb stuff that came from a smart place. I'm going to have to write down all the David Allen teaches Zen quotes (laughs) from the conversations that we've had in this recording. (laughs) What has your attention is what most needs your attention. I mean, you've, yep. you've got a dozen of these that are, are super useful in thinking about this. Let me ask you a few of my lightning round questions because mm-hmm. I, I want to get a little bit closer to some of, of who you are. Starting with what are you reading right now and why? Nothing. Nothing, well, because you're on this with me, but are you reading outside no. of this? Not right now, no. Last yeah. thing you read? Last thing I read was a fabulous book about China. It's called The Age of Ambition. Uh, it's about... Oh, four or five years old, but it's still very, very, very relevant. And because we just opened up China, our franchise there, it was interesting to me to find out about it. And it's a, it's a brilliant book that actually gives you a whole lot of the backstory that makes a lot of those headlines that make no sense make more, a lot more sense. So that was a, a great read. What's the most important book you've ever read, if you can name that, and why? <laughs> I don't have one. There's a string of them as I was beginning my spiritual explorations in life. And on that path, there were just a whole bunch of them in a row. I couldn't even tell you which one. I think, I think the one that got me more onto the spiritual path that I was on as a conscious spiritual path was a book called The Gateways to Spiritual Science by Rudolf Steiner. I don't even uh, know that book. I was going to guess uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. No, no. Well, you know, I read all of Suzuki and Alan Watts was when, I, when I was in high school, and those were really cool. But in terms of particular point in my life where that made a big, and Black Elk Speaks, man, that was, what a great book that, that was. Yeah. What a great book that was. And so one day I just walked into Shambhala Bookstore in Berkeley, you know, this is 1971, you know, or whatever. And I looked down and I just saw that title. I said, I wonder what that is. Because I'd had a number of inner, you know, and spiritual experiences and just, I had no context for them. I had no idea where they came from, what to do with them. You know, wow, what do I do with that lightning bolt that just hit me? And so I think that was a, that was a turning point in my life, just reading that book and starting to realize his wasn't the only one. But then, you know, I read a whole series of, of the occult literature that was written back then. So Was that a, a sort of a Zen book? No. Well, if you, if you know Steiner, if you, any I of don't. Well, there, there was the Theosophist movement in Europe back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Gurdjieff and uh, Uspensky, those were some of the major thinkers then. That's a whole, that's that's a, a whole, that's a, a different whole line. That's a whole realm of stuff out there. Anyway, but that, I, was, that had a lot more to do with my inner life. Who's had the biggest influence on your thinking? A man named John Roger, who was my spiritual coach and mentor for 45 years. How about as it applies to business? You know, God, there's a lot of just all kinds of people have had great pieces of this that I found interesting and useful at various times. But again, I don't have a huge business and I'm not that big a businessman or business person. I created a methodology that's very useful in business, but that's business has not been my particular focus. I mean, Peter Drucker was kind of the major guru of all kinds of stuff. And he, you know, as framing what knowledge work was and he was also kind of my hero because he wrote so much about organizational life, and yet he didn't even have a secretary. <laughs> you know, he had no organization whatsoever. He wrote his manuscripts, and they showed up typed in his door the next day. You know, and you, you couldn't hire Peter without having your check already in his bank account. You know, so he had no AR. He had nothing. So I thought, well, that's kind of fascinating. It's a pretty, anyway. pretty good model. But there, you know, over the years, there have been a business book every year, anyway, that's been useful or given me a new perspective on things and, and, and good stuff. So, 
I thought I was a high reader until I took Frank's test, and then I found out I'm a low reader, just scanning for actionable insights all the time. Yeah. That was yeah. a surprise. Yeah, pretty much me too. I'm going to have to go back to novels, I think, to try to work back into getting deeper. The thing about GTD is it, it's big. So this question that I ask, what's the most important lesson you've learned in life up to this point? And I think the GTD model answers a lot of that, but I'd like to hear your answer on that. You know, it's my screensaver. It's just two little words. It says, let go. I mean, control is the highest human, is the biggest human addiction. So, you know, just, hey, stop, take a breath, let go. And you know, God does not need my help today. It takes a long time to learn that you have no control and the control that you think you have is an illusion anyway, right? <laughs> well, too controlled is out of control. That's the interesting paradox. And you, and you started by talking about your 35 jobs, but if you weren't doing the work that you do now, writing, speaking, growing this, this now global franchise firm, what job would you want to do? I would have a florist shop with the way coolest artifacts in there. And I would do custom designed Ikebana and arrangements with antiques and cool ironwork and whatever for clients who really appreciated that. Or I would wait on tables in a really classy French restaurant. <laughs> There's a bit of a contrast there. No, not really. <laughs> Being of service in a very elegant way improves people's lives and adds to their value. And also that I appreciate the aesthetics of all of it. So That's a great and unexpected answer. <laughs> what do you hope to be remembered for? Having created something that improved people's lives, no matter who they were and how much of it they applied, that had absolutely no negative downside to it whatsoever. That's a wonderful place for us to stop. Thanks so much for being here. Anthony, my pleasure. What a great, fun interview. That was David Allen, and he's had a tremendous impact on my life with the work with GTD and two books. I would pick up Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity, which was just re-released in 2015, so it's updated. But he wrote another book that doesn't get the same kind of attention and should, and that book is called Making It All Work, Winning at the Game of Work and the Business of Life. That book is really, really a good book for thinking about perspective on your whole life at 50,000 feet, at meaning and purpose purpose and things like that. So do pick both of those books up. We'll have them for you in the show notes. I'm Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com where I publish daily. You'll also find a pop-up banner there that allows you to sign up for my Sunday newsletter, which is my best content every week delivered directly to your inbox so that you can take action on it Monday morning. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. I publish there not as frequently as I want to, but there will be a lot more coming, I promise you. You can also go and find a free resource I've created for you about how to plan a sales call by going to howtoplanasalescall.com. When you sign up there, you're immediately going to be taken to four videos that you can watch and a workbook that will help you think about planning your sales calls. Shoot me a note and let me know how that content works for you. Also, Go to iTunes, leave me a review. Let me know what you think about this interview with David and what you think about the show overall. I'm Anthony Anarino, and I will see you next time in the arena.
This episode of In the Arena was sponsored by Sales Gravy University. You know I'm good friends with Jeb Blunt, and you know he does great work, and you know he wrote Fanatical Prospecting, but you may not know that he created Sales Gravy University. And what is Sales Gravy University, you ask? And it's a great question. Sales Gravy University is sales training in your pocket. What you're going to get is an innovative training app that's going to help you accelerate your sales performance and improve your income, and it's in your pocket. It's on your phone, whether that's an iPhone or an Android phone. You can go out to the iTunes store and download the app, or you can go to the Play Store and download the app there. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the platform when you sign up, and you're going to be able to buy what you want. There's going to be in-app purchases there for you. You can purchase some courses for 99 cents, and that might be a short video, a tutorial, or an audio program. You're also going to find something that costs more. I think I have a program on there for $9.99, and it's how to plan a sales call. It's four modules. It's probably close to 25 minutes long, and it's content to help you set up success When you're going to do the most important thing that salespeople do, and that's go sit down face-to-face with a client or a prospect. Here's what I love about this platform, and this is where I think Jeb's genius comes in. This is spot training. So you're in your car. You've got a problem. You're going to go out. You're going to watch a video. You're going to read a tutorial, or you're going to listen to an audio track, and you're going to come up with the ideas that you need to succeed when you're sitting down with that customer. Or maybe this is part of your personal development and your growth, and you're going to listen to one module every week, and you're going to work on that module, and then the next week, you're going to pick up something else and grow from there. Go check out Sales Gravy University. You can Google it, and you'll come up with the iTunes preview as the second link. You'll also find the link in the show notes or go out to the Play Store and search for Sales Gravy. I promise there's nothing else in the world called Sales Gravy and only a Southerner like Jeb Blunt who rides horses and eats steak and probably drinks whiskey is going to call something Sales Gravy because to a Southerner, nothing is real unless you can put gravy on it. Go check it out. When you get there, tell Jeb that I sent you and do check out the sales call planning module there. I think you'll love it and I think that you're going to find it super helpful when you go in to make a sales call. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.